you. I'm Kim. And I'm Tara. Welcome to Unapologetically You. Today's guest is Alicia, and her story takes childhood trauma to a whole new level. You know, your parents are supposed to be your protector. They're supposed to keep you safe, guide you, and encourage you. But for Alicia, her experiences were quite different. I don't really have the right words to describe Alicia's story. So stay tuned. Welcome, Alicia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. So for our listeners at home, Alicia went through a pretty difficult childhood. Alicia's parents got divorced, and then you ended up living with your dad most of the time, right? Yeah, um, I refer to him as bio dad because I've been adopted since then. So he's bio dad or abuse daddy is like what my followers on TikTok call him. So you can go with that too. Ah, uh, that makes <laughs> sense. Bio dad. All right. So why don't we start with like what life was like pre-step monster, right? Okay, so when I think I was like eight or nine is when my parents got divorced and my bio dad was fighting for custody against my bio mom. And so when we lived with bio dad after he got custody and everything, it was really weird because it was very much like a honeymoon phase is kind of how I refer to it, where he was just, I mean, we lived on a farm. He bought us all our own horses and he was just like kind of spoiling us raw and taking us on all these cool trips, taking us to amusement parks, spending time with us. And like, it was just a really weird because even as kids, like pre-divorce, he was never around. We were always with our mom because he worked a lot. So then it's like when he got us before he met Step Monster, then he would suddenly wanted to spend time with us, which was great. And then, yeah, it was just kind of interesting because that's not his personality. He's not one of those people who like actually spends time with his family. He'd rather sure. work all the time. It was very different, but I mean, it was fun. Like while it lasted, I mean, as a kid, we were living a dream. We were going to the beach. We were going camping. Like we, he was like taking us horseback riding, all this other stuff. So it was like living almost like this picture perfect life, right? Right. Yeah. And then, so then your bio dad meets this woman and what take, walk us through what exactly happened from there. Okay. So he met, that monster at it's kind of funny at the same bar where he met my biological mom yeah so that's interesting so yeah he met her there and they started dating and i if i remember correctly it was like a year which is a very common like utah thing people get married at 18 like they don't they don't date for very long it's just like you date you get married you have kids so they dated for about a year and then he got engaged and they got married and then her kids moved into our house with us that we'd originally shared with like my bio dad and my mom so at first it was just like awkward in a sense because all of a sudden he went from like spending all this time with us to only spending time with her. And then he brought in like all her kids and we had to adjust. I mean, at one point there was five of us girls in one room and then our brother had his own room that was next to it. Wow. Five in a room. That's yeah, it was, it was really crowded. Like we had two sets of bunk beds, like one on each side. And then there was a toddler bed for my youngest stepsister sleeping because she was like two or three i think she was about two at the time so she slept in that and then we had our two bunk beds and it just i just remember like the closet was always overflowing it was always a mess in there which was really hard because like myself as well as my twin sister were super big meat freaks and then my younger bio sister and then our two step siblings they're not that way and so it was just chaotic constantly of having all of us in that room and it was just a disaster and i mean like there's so much (laughs) So how old were you when the step monster came into the picture? I want to say somewhere between 10 and 11. The timeline's kind of fuzzy. I'm about 10 or 11 because the divorce was finalized. My bio mom moved. You know, I might have been actually 9 or 10 because uh, my bio mom had moved and left um, out of state. But bio dad and step monster were married before she moved. So 
Okay. Kind of somewhere in there, nine to 11. <laughs> yeah. So just a kid. Yeah. So you're sharing this room with, I'm sure what feels like a million different people. <laughs> so like, how, what was that? Like, what was the house climate like, I guess, you know, like what, what was your relationship with this, with your step, the stepmom, And what was your relationship with your dad at that point? So with my bio dad, we, he has started spending all of his time with her. Like I said earlier, like she just kind of like swooped in and that caused a lot of resentment because as a kid, like you don't realize really what's going on. It was just like one minute he was all about us. And then she was like the new fancy toy. So he would just leave. And then they would leave us with all these younger kids to take care of. Because like I said, my youngest stepsister, she was two at the time when they met, I think she was under two when they met. So we would take care of her and then her other sister. And then our stepbrother was just a couple, like a year younger than us. And so there was kids from two to nine or 10 that were staying at the house. And then us as like nine or 10 year olds were watching all these younger kids. So the climate was like chaotic. I remember we used to get really upset and be like, we're not your built-in babysitter. And we didn't understand because they had both had different parenting styles. And she was way more like laid back and understanding versus him who's very like authoritative and super aggressive. And she wasn't like that. And so her kids reacted differently than we did. Like we knew things that we were not allowed to do and they just kind of did whatever they want. It was like the mom who just kind of like lets her kids be kids. And he was very much like, no, you're not going to do that. It was just really hard to adjust having her kids being able to do all these things and be kids. And they were naughty in a sense, like the way that we would see things. We're like, why you're not supposed to do stuff like that. Yeah her not reacting and then us being like terrified to even like think of doing something that they were doing because of the way that he was like your world completely got turned upside down like not only did your parents get divorced but now this like picture perfect dad you had for a minute is all of a sudden gone and you're just like living this life now with these new kids and you're the official babysitter yeah my therapist calls it a parentified child so what it was where they moved in and then all of a sudden we're having to take care of them and watch these kids and do all these things with them, everything they're supposed to be doing. Because my step monster, while she was like really nice understanding, she was super neglectful and she was super uninvolved where she like, that's the reason she was so laid back and easy going is because she just really didn't care what they were doing or what was going on. Yeah. She didn't really know how to parent. Yeah, that makes sense. She ended up bringing Mormonism into the house too. Yeah. So when they met, she was definitely like a very devout Mormon when she moved into her house. I mean, that's how she portrayed herself. It's one of those things that's kind of hard to explain where she was very like, she portrayed herself as a devout Mormon, but she was drinking and smoking cigarettes and having coffee every morning and doing all the things that you're not supposed to do. But when she came into the house, because bio dad, he grew up Mormon, but we were never religious and him and my mom, they had made the decision that we were not going to be raised Mormon. And then when they got divorced and he met her and then she comes in and she's suddenly turning everything Mormon where like, I mean, she was like Mormon down to like temple garments that she would wear. Yeah. And and then she's like sitting in the garage, smoking a cigarette, drinking a cup of coffee. It's fine. When she moved in and it was always, Oh, we're going to start going to church. And we started having to go to church every Sunday, which for us was weird because we're like, we don't want to do this. And we'd gone a couple of times with my, like his family, like my aunt and stuff growing up. And we're just like, no, we don't, we don't ever do this. And then suddenly with him, it was like, you're going to go to church and you're going to be baptized and you're going to do all the stuff. And we were about 12 at that point where they decided that we were going to be baptized. And they were having us to like go to young women's and go do all this other stuff. There's this thing like they do girls camp when you're in young women's. 
And when you go to girls camp, you would all sit and you do what's called bearing your testimony. And it's where you sit there and you say that the church is true and all this other stuff. And like basically like devout yourself to God. And like, I never did it. Cause I was like, I don't, I don't know what this means. <laughs> yeah. Not, like me and my sister, when we would go, we would never do anything like that. But I just remember sitting around like the campfire and like, we should be like telling scary stories. Why are we like devoting ourselves to God? This is it's one thing for kids that are like brought up like that. You know what I mean? Like that's your only life that you know. Because the thing is, is like when she was wanting us to go, it was the weird thing I remember when I was a kid is she would always make us feel like we were less than because she was Mormon and all of her family and like her friends would be like, oh, you guys aren't baptized. And I'm like, I already get this like shit at school constantly. Cause when you grow up in where I grew up in Utah and Bountiful and like Woods Cross area, everybody's known each other since their baby blessings. And since we weren't raised Mormon, none of them know us. And we already get that shit at school cause we're not. And so then it, we were getting it at home from her of like, Oh, you know, you you guys need to get baptized. And her friends like they, you know, give you the look up and down. Like you're not baptized. Oh my God. Wait, out of curiosity, baby blessing. Is that getting baptized? That's just what they call it. So there's a baby blessing when you're a baby. Um, it's not getting baptized. It's two separate things. So when you get baptized, I believe it's eight years old is like oh. when you get baptized into the religion. But it's a baby blessing. It's just I don't know the specifics of it. So I'm not going like, to go too much into it. Sure. When you're like an infant, they take you to the front of the church in the sacrament room and they do like a baby blessing where like the bishop and a couple of other like men, I think from the priesthood is what it's called. They like bless you as a baby. And so we've always joke if you're not like when you grew up in Utah, if you're not Mormon, that's like kind of the running joke of like, oh, everybody's known each other since their baby blessings because they all go to church together. And so they all have friends before they go to school because they've been seeing each other already versus like being the new kid because you don't do that. Okay, right. that makes sense. Okay. All right. So she brings this whole new life into your world, but like on top of the Mormonism, there's a level of abuse and neglect that continues to go on in your world. So why don't you talk a little bit about what continued or what began happening or what continued to happen? Yeah. So the first thing I remember happening, I mean, other than the neglect of like them leaving us alone with the kids all the time was they put a lock on the outside of our bedroom door when all five girls were staying in there. And it's because my youngest stepsister, she was a toddler and she was used to close sleeping with her mom. And bio dad didn't like that because he's very much like kids sleep in their own bed. She's old enough. She's like two years old. And so it was immediately from when they moved into like, she's not sleeping in their bed anymore. She's going to sleep in the girl's room. And after a couple months of us being in the girl's room, she would sit outside their bedroom door and they would lock it and she would just scream and cry until she threw up and then fell asleep laying outside oh her door. God, and they would yeah. just sit in their room. And I mean, I don't know step monsters feelings were about it i don't know if like it really upset her or if she just didn't care because bio dad is very manipulative and very like demanding so she's kind of also a victim of this i mean she definitely did like her own shit but he definitely had a very big influence on a lot of the abuse that went on and yeah. so his solution to that was to buy a lock and put it on the outside of the bedroom door and they would lock us in there after dinner we'd all go to the bathroom when it was time for bed we'd all go way down they'd lock the door and we couldn't come out until they woke up the next morning. And granted, they yes, they get up early to go to work because he has to leave at like five. So they would unlock the door and let us out early. But like if we had to go to the bathroom or anything, we would just have to stay in there. And that was just how that was just the rule. Like, what if you were sick? Like, what if you had the flu? And the thing is, too, is like if we had accidents in our bed, like the younger kids would have accidents in their bed. That yeah. was like a whole that would rain down a whole bunch of physical abuse if anybody 
had an accident or it didn't matter if you needed water. It didn't matter if you were sick. And the thing is too, is like my youngest bio sister, even though we were, or I'm sorry, youngest stepsister, even though we were locked in this room, that didn't stop her from crying, sitting at the door, screaming for her mom. And she just couldn't get out. So then we're all having to hear it, which of course as a kid, like I wish I could say like, we were all coddling and oh, it's okay. And it's like, no, shut up, go to sleep. Like, we're all tired. We all have to get up. You're going to make him mad. The thing is like when he would get mad if that would happen because he's been working all day and he wants to leave, he has to be up early the next day. Then that would also bring in a bunch of other physical abuse because we're not going to bed. Well, and then like, I'm sure there was like blame placed on you guys for also not making sure that she was quiet. It was definitely like that. It was like, why is she not in bed? Why is she crying? Why aren't you guys doing anything about it? It's like, I don't know. I'm 11. Right. Exactly. I didn't have this child. Like, contrary to popular belief, these are not my children. (laughs) Exactly. There was also a level of withholding food, right? Yeah, that's where like the other lock came in where they put a lock on the pantry because they would tell us that we were eating too much. And the thing is, is like growing up my entire life, all the way up until a couple of years ago when I started doing therapy and talking about it, it's like we weren't, they would tell us we were eating too much. And it's, we weren't eating too much. We were just kids. They just didn't want to pay for groceries for six kids when separately they've been providing food for three kids. And now there's all of us and we're having to provide food for six kids and them. And now suddenly it's more expensive. Yeah. Because you've got more kids to feed. And so they would get really upset about that all the time of just, you guys are eating too much. You're wasting food. And it's like, we weren't eating too much. We were just kids. We were hungry. So we ate because that's what kids do. And there also wasn't really any structure of like breakfast, lunch, dinner, even though we were only supposed to eat three meals a day. Cause that was another big thing was you only eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but there was no structure with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So it's not like they got up and we all had breakfast together and then they packed sure. us lunches, ate a meal. It was just, these are the times. And so then like we would eat throughout the day. And so we got mad about that because all of the groceries were going a lot faster. And so they put the lock on the pantry and they would let us in there in the morning after they unlocked the bedroom door, they would let us get up and go eat breakfast with them. Like we'd all get up, have cereal, whatever, get, get ready for school. And we'd make ourselves lunches or we would just eat lunch at school because we got the free lunch since there were so many of us. And then they would lock the pantry again. And then when we came home, we didn't eat until they got there. And so school would get out between like for all of us between like two and three thirty, And so we would all get home and then they would come home maybe six or seven o'clock at night. And so we would go all that time from eating lunch at school at whatever time kids eat lunch, like 10 or 11 yeah. to not eating until they got back because we weren't allowed to. I mean, I cannot even imagine. Yeah. I have kids and they come home from school and they act like they haven't eaten in 10 days. So I can't imagine I mean, you're starving when you're a kid and you get home from school. Right. Yeah. And they would do that. And then they would also, when they would do dinner, it's not like it was like they all sat and cooked. Like every once in a while, they would decide to make a meal if like it's something they wanted to eat. Mm-hmm. And I really remember that stands out is they would go out to dinner. And so they would be gone even longer until 730, 8 o'clock at night because they went out to dinner after work. And then they would just come home and unlock the pantry and there'd be like SpaghettiOs or ramen or something like that for us to eat. And we would have a little while to take out what we were going to eat. And they'd be like, Hey, we're going to lock the pantry. And they would just lock in, take the key into their room. And they would keep food in the freezer and stuff like that. And in the freezer, they've been asked that, why didn't we just eat what was in there? But it's not like food you can make meals with. Like they would have like frozen meat or they would get like the dollar pizzas. And then once those were gone, you were kind of screwed. And there was even a 
freezer, a meat freezer outside. I'm not sure if that one had a lock on it. I can't really remember. I feel like it did, but I'm not sure. There's some stuff where I'm not super like clear on. So I don't talk about those portions, but I'm pretty sure that they put one, like they got a freezer specifically with a lock on it. Cause I remember they would get the dollar Totino's pizzas and they would have them all just like stack in there, like 40 of them, just so that way we'd have something to eat. It's cause that way they didn't have to cook. And we just learned how to do that ourselves at a really young age is put right. a pizza in the oven. And, and it sounds like even when you are eating, it's not like you're eating anything that's filling, you yeah. know what I mean? And nothing nutritious or whatever. So you're not going to be, you're not going to feel full for very long. And what an awful, awful feeling. Yeah, just when it was like that all the time. I remember my younger, my youngest um, step sibling, since she never really had to eat like meals that were prepared, when we did eat, all she, I remember her living off of was corn, like from the can, uh, corn dogs and hot dogs. That was all she would eat because that's all we could ever make her as kids. And then they weren't making her eat anything else. And so she was always really skinny, disgustingly skinny. Like if she bent, like you could like count her spine. And they just like thought that that was normal. It's, just, it's awful. And so like yeah. that went on. I mean, I'm sure that went on like your entire childhood then, right? They The lock on the pantry was on there for a long time. We eventually moved into our own rooms when he finished the basement. We had a two-story house. So once he finished the basement, the older kids, uh, my twin sister and I shared her bedroom until I believe I was 16 or 17. Like we just slept on a twin mattress on the floor. And then I got my own room. Our brother moved downstairs next to us. And then the kids kind of split up and had their own room. But that room, I'm pretty sure, even when I moved out, still had a lock on the door. So that way they could lock my youngest stepsister in there. Okay, so like as you are getting older, like at that 16-year-old self, like I know that there a lot of the um, information that you kind of shared with us, like talked about manipulation and gaslighting. And like, what was that whole situation like? Or what was that dynamic like? So it started turning into like, it first started when I got turned 16, I got the car and they had, what happened is when BioDad and Stepmonster got together, she was driving this really shitty little sedan. And of course, all of us wouldn't fit in it. Eventually it blew up and died. So he got her, cause he's a mechanic, he owns his own business. He got her a Dodge Durango and he fixed it for her. So that way she could tote all of us kids around in one car. And then eventually she ended up getting a Honda Civic that she bought. And so he kept the Dodge. And when I turned 16, that became my car. And like I had to pay for it and do all this other stuff. But that kind of gave me the responsibility of having to tote all of the kids around. And so I would have to pick them up from school. I'd have to take them to school. And then I also, since I had this car, I had to work a job. So that way I could afford the gas and the car insurance because we're not, they don't pay for things like that for you. So you have to do that because even when I, I got a job at 14 initially because they stopped paying for necessities for us, like shampoo, conditioner, tampons, things like that. They just decided that BioDad, his exact words were, I was 14 when I got my first job and you need to get yours. And it's because he grew up on a farm where he like learned how to do all this stuff. Sure. He got his job. So then therefore we needed to have one. I got my first job at 14 and then I had that job when I got the car and then I ended up getting a new job because I was working at an amusement park because that's all you can do when you're 14. And I started yeah. working at a coffee shop and so that way I could pay for everything. But with that, like I said, turns into having to tote the kids around. And so having to work my work schedule around the kids schedule was really difficult because not a lot of, I mean, my boss at the time, he was great. He was very understanding. That's kind of where the gaslighting and stuff had started to come in because I was ungrateful. 
for having the car if I ever complained about it. like if I had a work meeting and I'm like, hey, I'm not gonna be able to pick the kids up because I have to have a meeting with my boss or hey, I can't pick the kids up because I have to go to this thing after class before I go to work. So you're going to need to pick them up. And it was me being an ungrateful shithead because I didn't want to, I couldn't do this. And I just, how dare I? And they're just giving me this car. At the time you don't connect the dots of like, well, technically no. I'm paying for it. Right. And these aren't my kids. And the thing that's hard is, a lot of people have to take care of their siblings because their parents work, which is different than this because these guys could do it. My bio dad was self-employed. Like I said, he owns his own shop. So he very easily could leave work, go pick up the kids and then go back to work. Well, yeah. Helping out as a teenager, picking up a kid or two here and there, or like running a kid to the store, doing whatever you have to do. Okay. That's one thing. You were literally like a single parent at 16, yeah. you know? Right. Yeah. That's, that is the difference. And a lot, cause a lot of people, they don't get that. Oh, you had to babysit your siblings. That's what I thought for a long time was that everybody does this. Like everybody has to take care of their siblings. And it's like, no, not like that. Not right. to that extent. Yeah. No, not at all. Trauma affects us all differently, but like when you're not realizing the traumatic experiences, like you dealt with and you kind of real, like you think almost like you said, like, it's almost like it's normal. Like this is just what everybody's experiencing. Right. How did you handle that as like a young adult? Um, it took a lot for me to even realize that I was abused. Like I said, I didn't even realize until it was a couple, like a couple years ago where I was like, Oh, these things aren't normal. I mean, I, the first inclination I have of like that I was growing up in an abusive and neglectful house is when I went to my best friend, um, in high school and went to her house. And she asked us if we wanted something to eat when we got there. And we were like, what? Like myself and my twin sister. We're like, yeah. you can you can eat when you get home from, she just looked at us like we were weird. And she was just like, yeah. And then being over at her house, like going, being able to go and hang out in her room. And like, even if her parents are watching TV or whatever, we're not having to be like super quiet. Cause that was another thing too. So it's just weird little things like that is kind of what triggered it. And then dealing with it as an adult, I mean, it's still rough even knowing it like knowing what happened, it's kind of, it's like a bittersweet feeling. Cause I'd rather just like not know that I was being abused and just think that like that was completely normal versus being self-aware of it and having to deal with it and cope with it and try to be better. I mean, which is good because it helps break the cycle and it brings awareness to it because the way that I grew up, whenever I tell my story, people always assume that I grew up in like a trailer trash, you know, poverty, low class area. And it's like, no, I was that kid who was, you know, living in a really nice house with parents who had nice cars. And yeah. who looked very professional and they went to church on Sundays. This is why it's so important to share your story. Just because there's somebody else that might be out there that's like, oh my God. A, it doesn't just happen in environments that you think it happens in. It happens everywhere. And for adults that have gone through it too, just to know that like you went through it and like, look at you now. You know what I mean? Like you've gone through a lot of different shit in your life. And we haven't even really talked about like at some point, like you, there was a little bit of alcoholism going on too, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, when I was, it started when I was about 17. I mean, the drinking, like that's when it, the alcoholism really got bad. But it started when I was about 14. She started giving us alcohol and our friends alcohol. And Set Monster was the one who was doing this. And it's because she was also an alcoholic and didn't think that she had a problem. And so she gave us alcohol when we were 14. Just a couple of our friends were over and we just like drank a little bit. And then it was, haha, it's fine, fun, whatever. And then a couple like as like the years went on it would just be a little bit like new year's or christmas or holidays things that were every fourth of july when everybody's over and we're having fun we can have a little bit of alcohol if we were out camping we can have a little bit and then once i hit like 15 16 it started being like you can have a beer with dinner and then i started smoking weed when i was 16 and my bio dad got really mad because to him weed is meth 
Like if you smoke weed, you're a drug addict. That's how he felt about it. And he's like, I would much rather you have a beer at home or have you drink than smoke weed. So then we would, I would start drinking a lot. My twin sister didn't do a whole lot of this like with them, but with me and her, me and stepmaster started getting really close because me and her just got along really well. And so we would start drinking together. I started smoking cigarettes with her when I was 14. And it was just so I could sit and spend time with them. And like, who in their right mind buys cigarettes for a 14 year old? Right. When I hit 17, something super traumatic happened. And so that just like kind of sent me off the deep end with alcohol and me and her, we were drinking all the time. We were drinking together. It started like, like I said, a beer with dinner and then it started turning into a mixed drink with dinner. And then it started turning to mixed drink in my coffee, going to school, I was going to school drunk. There are pictures of me like with my friends and hanging out and I don't remember any of it. And it's just because I became so functioning as an alcoholic at 17. And then once I hit 18, I started having a lot of suicidal ideation, a lot of depression and mixed with the alcoholism wasn't really a good combo. And so my twin sister was out with her boyfriend one night and she had this crazy feeling that she needed to come home. And so she came home and I had attempted suicide. And so the next morning they took me to rehab. Like she drove, she called my mom. My bio dad had no idea that any of this was even going on. She drove me to rehab. And when I went in, they basically told me like I had to be there. That I couldn't leave. Like once I got dropped off, I was stuck there. Yeah. And so I filled out the paperwork and sat there and I had to call my bio dad. And when I called him, he wasn't like worried or upset. He was mad and told me that I was going to cost him a bunch of money and that I was weak for trying to get help. And that everybody's sad sometimes and that I don't have a drinking problem and that I'm just doing it for attention. So that kind of really messed me up. I remember being really upset and really disappointed with myself yeah. and like me out and wanting to leave because I was like, I'm going to cost him so much money and what, like, I don't actually have a problem. And I was just drunk and it was stupid. Oh, God, that's awful. Yeah. When you're a kid and an adult tells you things, you believe it, right? Like that's just, these are the people, these are the parents that are supposed to be taking care of you. So of course, as you get older, even though like common sense would tell you or logic would tell you like, no, you shouldn't believe that. You still believe what the, your parents are saying. Yeah. You know, like it takes, like you said, breaking that cycle and like learning your value really and recognizing like what I went through is not normal. Yeah, because I didn't even realize how many people were out there until I started doing because the whole thing I got like where I got stuck on this was TikTok is I made a TikTok one day because this that song by NF came on and I, like and it just exploded. And it was just so many people who were sitting there and they're like, yeah, me too, me too. And it's like, what? I'm not the only person that this happened to. And I mean, I mean, not to be like that conceited and humble. No, it's like, yeah, of course it happens to other people, but you don't know it. No, no, you, you really, really don't. don't. Yeah. You really don't. And then that's why it's so important to share your story because there are so many people that can connect with you and that understand what you're talking about and what you went through. Right. After rehab, what happens from there? So after rehab, um, I tried to stay sober. When I came home, it was really difficult when I because I had to go back with BioDad and Stepmonster. While I was in rehab, they had had a meeting between him, her, and my biological mom with my therapist. And they were all talking about how when I come home, how there needs to be no alcohol, I need to be like watched and I need to follow make all these follow up appointments like go through with my follow up plan, and all that stuff and do the steps they wanted me to find AA. So when I got home, the things were not different. Like I the first thing I went for when I got home was the liquor cabinet and it was still there. 
all of it. Even like my drink of choice, everything, it was all still in there. And I had to just like sit there and like try to keep my shit together. Like, no, I've been sober for a week. Detoxing was awful, by the way. When I went into rehab, that was like the worst feeling ever. It was trying to detox like off alcohol. It was like horrific. So that was kind of keeping me sober because it was scary and I didn't want to do it again. Mm-hmm. I went in, like opened the fridge. There was beer in the fridge. The only thing they cleaned out was the bottles that were in my bedroom. That was the only thing that was gone. Everywhere else, it was fine. And I just needed to get my shit together. And it wasn't their responsibility to take care of me. So, but when I went to Vegas, where I flew out to see my mom and my now adopted dad, they handled it completely differently. They are very, I wouldn't say like big drinkers, like they're not alcoholics, but they like to have parties and like to have friends over, like to relax. They always have alcohol at their house. And it was all like up and put away and locked, like in a freezer. To where I couldn't even see it out of sight, out of mind. If we went out to dinner, they weren't ordering drinks just because I was sitting there trying to be supportive. So it was just a complete like 180. I relapsed at 28 days sober at a friend's house. After that, I stayed sober for a while after I relapsed after that. So at any time when all this is going on, um, did you ever consider trying to go live with your mom, your biological mom? Um, I didn't. Uh, My biological mom and I haven't had a good relationship really up until about three or four years ago. We can't spend a lot of time together. I mean, we can now, but back then, like we couldn't really be around each other. I was very much like a devote daddy's girl to my bio dad. And so to me, everything that he was saying about her was true. And I never gave her the chance to explain herself or defend herself. And looking back now, obviously he's narcissistic and manipulative. And this is what he says about everyone, especially being an adult and watching him go through his second divorce with Step Monster. He said exactly the same things that he said about my bio mom, about her. And which since I lived it, like what he was saying obviously wasn't true. Right. And so me, she and I did not have a great relationship. So I never considered going. Yeah. To me, she was the, the other villain. Yep. So when did you eventually decide to move to Vegas? I moved to Vegas when I was 21 after I got divorced because when I moved out of the house with bio dad and step monsters, when I met my ex-wife and so we had moved in together into like a shitty apartment in a ghetto part of town and we were there together for a couple of years. And after we got divorced, uh, my life kind of fell apart. And so I moved back in with bio dad for a couple months and then I just couldn't take it because it was practically being homeless because when him and um, step monster got divorced, he moved into a camping trailer and then he had another wow. camping trailer right next to it. And so I moved into that one, had no heat, no electricity, no water, nothing. It's like gym passes and friends' houses is how I was showering. It was like really messy and it was the middle of December in Utah. So I just finally was like, you know, I'm gonna go live with mom. And she and I were kind of working on our relationship at that point. So it was just kind of she was just kept telling me to like come home and like go live with her. And I'm glad that I did because it definitely helped our relationship a lot. Yeah, sure. At some point your mom's husband adopts you then too. So your relationship, that family dynamic must have like been a whirlwind for you, like completely different. Yeah, it is absolutely insane. The like polar opposite. My adopted dad, he is just com- like, like I said, complete opposite of bio dad. It's like he cries. He watches Disney movies. He has never raised his voice at me. And like, I've, d- I've said and done some shitty things, even like as a teenager, when I come out to visit them. And sure. he's always just like, let's have a conversation. And it's weird. He's so different. And I remember my mom talks about it all the time, how when we first met him, because we met him when we were, I want to say 16, I think we were 16, 15, 16. We'd gone on a trip with a couple of our friends to California with them. And that was the first time we were meeting him and his kids. And 
one of us said to my mom, I don't know why he's trying so hard. And he, she's like, he's not, that's just how he is. And it's because he's like funny and he jokes and he's very much a people person and he's super like touchy feel. Like he just likes to hug you and yeah. our bio dad, like I'm pretty sure he gave me a handshake on my high school graduation. And like, that's it. Like there's some pictures of us together where it's like, Oh, put your arm around her. And like that step monster taking the picture. And we're all like super uncomfortable with it because he's yeah. a touchy person, but my adopted dad, He's all about that life. Like he just like wants to hug you and stuff like that. And we even now, like it's still weird. Like he'll do it and I'll like tense up. Yeah. And then like things have gotten better. Yeah. It's just the family dynamic. And like my mom, she, all she ever wanted was to be was a mom. And so that's kind of why bio dad took us from her was because that's the only way to hurt her. Oh, makes sense. My youngest bio sister moved in with her um, when she was about 11 or 12. And so she had a really good childhood from that point because my mom was the type of parent who does things that parents do for you. Like she never had to worry about food and she would always give her lunch money and anything that she needed or wanted to do like extra like curricular activities at school. Um, my sister was able to do all that. My mom would show up to everything and she didn't have to have a job because she wanted her to focus on school. And I remember thinking that was really weird. So what in the end, like now you've gained this family and things are just totally different for you like what in the end made you say like you know what I need to like work through this did you did you recognize that that was that your childhood finally was like totally not normal um there wasn't really like an aha moment as far as like realizing that stuff wasn't normal around Easter a couple years ago was the last time I talked to my bio dad and I talked to him on the phone and it's because he called me to complain about my twin sister who had just like ripped him a new asshole telling him that like he was abusive and if she could do it again, she would move in with my bio mom. And so I guess in a sense that was kind of like my aha moment is because I talked to him. I told him everything he did about the lock on the door, the pantry, the way he was physically abusive, verbally, everything that he said to me, like about rehab, all of that and how he left us to take care of her kids and all he said. And I asked him if he had anything to say for himself. And he just said, I'm just letting you get it out so you can get over it. And so, yeah. So in that moment, it was kind of like, that aha moment of like, hey, you know, maybe I should get help for this because I shouldn't be this angry. So I mean, I'm still angry. I've been doing therapy for a couple of years for it and I'm still angry. Yeah, we're all handed different cards. And you're now working through all of this. And it's just it's, it's so crazy, because your path could have been entirely different. You know, like you could be an entirely different person right now. What advice would you give to someone who's working through childhood trauma? Definitely therapy. <laughs> like if you're not going to therapy, you need to go to therapy because it makes all the difference because it's like, you need to talk about it and you need to get it out and you need to talk to somebody who's not biased because there's a difference between venting to someone, even if it's a family member or a sibling, like they're going to invalidate you or they're going to want to talk over you or to you about those things. And it's not the same as going through therapy, but it's also just, doing also like daily affirmations to like reminding yourself like their voice that's inside your head that's not how you should perceive yourself like i always tell people not to perceive themselves as the way that the worst person in their life talks to them like the way that that person talks about you don't perceive yourself that way because they are the most toxic person they're the worst person in your life for a reason truth yes exactly what have you learned about yourself going through this entire process it's very interesting to find out like where like my anger comes from or my temper comes from or my anxiety and all of that, like where that comes from and all of that. Like I've learned that I'm a strong person. I've learned that I can go through a lot and not only go through, I don't just continue the cycle. I've learned to stop it and 
break it and not, we're not going to do that anymore. And it's like, it stops here. Like all the negative stuff, all the toxic stuff that happened with like my bio dad and that family, it just, it stops here. Cause I know that myself as well as like my twin sister, cause she's the only one that I really have a relationship at this point. It also stops with her. Like she's not continuing to do what he's doing. Like she's does, you know, she, she does, she has her own child and she doesn't do any of the things when she very easily could, because that's how she was, that's how she was raised. She could, she could act like she doesn't know any better, but yeah. yeah. then she's choosing to be better about it and recognizing that these things are wrong. And that's the same thing I guess that I do too, is recognize that it's wrong. And then not only recognize that it's wrong, but also tell other people that like, it's wrong. And this is not a normal thing because there's so many people who will comment on my YouTube videos or my TikTok videos and talk about how, I help them tell their story or help them recognize that they're not alone or help them recognize that these things are abuse and that it's not okay. I've had a couple of young people, which is really hard, comment on my videos and tell me that it's not normal for you know them to have a block on their pantry. And I'm like, no, honey, it's not. No. Like you need to get help. Yeah. It's not okay. And that's really difficult because they're not in a position where they can just up and leave because they're young and there's not really anything you can do about it. And right. I think it's, I think it's really cool though. Like you guys, you, for being so powerless as kids, you guys have fully taken the power back. What has been the hardest part about your journey? The hardest part is definitely accepting it, accepting that we were actually abused because there's still going to be that voice that's in the back of your head that tells you constantly that I always hear it all the time, especially when I make a new video and it goes viral or if I'm like commenting on my YouTube stuff, when I'm filming a YouTube video, there's always this little voice in the back of my head that tells me I'm just making it up and it's not that serious. And then just doing this for attention. And that's because that's what we were told all the time. Anytime we would question anything is that we're just being dramatic. And then even after when we were teenagers or like young adults and I'm saying something to someone and it's like, no, you're just being dramatic. And it's just because I'm telling the wrong people because you're talking to people who are all part of you know his life that are like, no, you're just being dramatic. And then you're always perceived as, the bad kid or the kid who has issues or you're just challenging and you're not, you know, you, you're instantly not valid anymore because that's how, what they're telling other people. So that's always the hardest part is just fighting with that constant, like little voice that says that you're just making this up and it's not real. Like it's given me anxiety to the point of like panic attacks in the middle of the night after I yeah. posted a video and being like, you're just making this up and it's not real. And it's like, no, it did happen. And I guess it's in a sense, it's also a coping mechanism. Right. Yeah. What do you hope the takeaway is of your story for our listeners? Um, I hope that it makes other people pay attention and not discriminate against, you know, kids in middle class families. Don't just assume that because they come from a white picket fence, live, laugh, love Mormon household, that they're growing up in this nice, wonderful house and they appear to have everything they need. Don't assume just because they have the newest iPhone and a brand new car that they're not being abused or that they're not being neglected because a lot of people just assume that it happens in lower class. And I hear this all the time on like TikTok and YouTube of people trying to say that it does happen in middle class or upper class, but it doesn't happen as often. And in my personal opinion, I think it happens the same amount. You just don't believe it or you just don't see it because yeah. who's gonna? nobody's going to you think nobody's going to believe you and you think that nobody's yeah. going to talk about it. And so and like people who are working with kids, if, like pay attention to those things, like watch for the kid who, you know, is coming into school with dirty clothes or who is doing really well in school and then is suddenly failing or listen to people when they tell you, because as a, I can tell you right now as a teenager in high school, I told a lot of teachers little things that if they would have just listened a little harder instead of thinking that I was just making excuses, they could have saved me from a lot of trouble 
Well, Alicia, I don't even know. I don't necessarily have words to <laughs> explain how incredible I think you are. <laughs> um, but before we go, we just have some super lighthearted pop questions we're going to ask you. <laughs> the first question, are you a coffee or tea kind of girl? Definitely coffee. If you were a superhero, what would your power be? I think invisibility. What is your most used emoji? I think it is like the monkey with the hands over its eyeballs. Oh, that's, oh, that's a good one. That is a good one. Oh, uh, how do you feel about pineapple on pizza? Gross. Yes, girl. <laughs> it's disgusting. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Definitely a morning person. Us too. Me too. Yeah. Well, Alicia, your story is absolutely incredible, and it's sure to be so inspirational to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for being unapologetically you. Thank you. We're so happy you joined us, and we hope this story inspired you to be unapologetically you. Join us next time for another remarkable journey. And if you or someone you know has a story to share, please reach out to us on our website at unapologeticallyyoupodcast.com. Don't forget to like us on Instagram and Facebook at unapologeticallyyoupodcast. And please rate and subscribe on whatever platform you listen in on so that we can continue to inspire you.